0: Hello, this is Ray Redacted. And I'm Gary Leland, and you're listening to Episode 102 of the Crypto Cousins Podcast.
1: Feed your interest in Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies by joining Hall of Fame podcaster Gary Leland on the Crypto Cousins Podcast. And remember, we are all cousins in the world of crypto. This week's price of Bitcoin... $12,595.
0: $12,595. That's up $1,881, or 17.6% over the last seven days. Howdy, 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 howdy. Four howdies for you, Ray, because you're a Texas boy. There we go. That's
2: the fourth one. That's the
0: magical one. Yeah, it's the magical one. It's the, only the Texans get the fourth one there, dude. Three is just common stuff there. How you doing, Ray? Uh, long time, no talk. Maybe 15, 20 episodes.
2: For sure. It has been a little bit of a while. I hope uh, everybody had a great holiday for the 4th of July.
0: Well, Ray, I know this is getting old, but give us a 30-second intro as to who you are. Just 30 seconds. We don't need a long thing. Most people know who you are.
2: Sure. So I'm Ray Redacted. I am the uh, occasional security consultant here on Crypto Cousins. I work in the cybersecurity world for a company that does information security for corporations all over the world. And that's pretty quick there.
0: <laughs> and, uh, you know, what What got us going here is a couple weeks ago, we started talking about security issues. Um, and then you called me up to make sure that I was secure, you thought. And so I said, you know, we need to get you back on the show and talk about SIM swapping and stuff like that, because
2: that's a big thing right now. Oh, for sure. For sure. And, you know, the analogy that I would actually use, Gary, is, uh, you know, way back around like episode 50, Uh, When we first talked about SIM swapping, if one of your neighbors came to you and said, hey, one of our neighbors had their garage broken into and his televisions were stolen, uh, that would be concerning. But if one of your neighbors came to you and told you that 12 of your neighbors had been broken into via their garage door or whatever, then you would probably sit up and pay a lot more attention. And that's really where we are with the SIM porting or SIM hijacking attacks right now is they've become so widespread, especially... In this small community of uh, cryptocurrency users and enthusiasts, that it's really become, you know, somewhat of an epidemic that really needs to be addressed in several ways. So that's a a pretty
0: good analogy you put there. If my my neighbor had a problem, I'd say, oh, sorry to hear that. But if my whole street had the same problem, I'd be up at night with a gun, probably sitting at the door there. For sure. Making sure nothing happened.
2: Well, and, and and by the way, Gary, if I told you that all of the attacks were coming in through their electronic garage doors because the thieves had the ability to force open the garage doors using electronics, you know, that would be a, a very, very serious concern. Then you would really be wanting to get a, a stronger garage door lock and an alarm system and all kinds of other things. And that's that's really where we are with this uh, SIM porting epidemic Is is there are certain common threads to almost every one of these attacks that can be identified and hopefully defended against.
0: Where do you want to start? Let's let's start with, um, what do you think, social engineering?
2: Yeah, so let's, you know, we, I think we, we can start off by making some definitions. And I know that uh, out there in the cousin universe, uh, there are a lot of variety of skill sets and, and a lot of folks are a little bit more familiar with some terms than others. But the term social engineering is a cybersecurity term that refers to the use of deception or human psychology to get people to divulge uh, confidential information, such as passwords, or to get them to do things that they're not necessarily authorized to do. So the classic social engineering attacks are phishing, which is spelled with a PH, where people are fooled into giving their logins and passwords to certain websites. Uh, But more commonly, we see social engineering attacks where uh, hackers are basically hacking humans by contacting cellular providers and convincing them to move a phone number over from one SIM, uh, that's a subscriber identity module, to another SIM, and then they can take control of that cellular account.
0: I never knew what SIM stood for.
2: <laughs> well, now you do. <laughs> and and so ultimately, this this plague of attacks Is really a social engineering attack, as are many. As a matter of fact, uh, most attacks start with some type of social engineering. It's a little bit over ninety percent of the major data breaches start that way. Uh, But in this case, what ultimately happens is the adversary or the threat actor uh, is able to convince someone at typically AT and T, Sprint, T-Mobile, or Verizon that they've lost their phone and that they need their phone service restored. To a different SIM. That's that little chip that goes in the back of the phone. And then once that happens, especially in the cryptocurrency world, the attacker is then able to use that new phone and that new SIM to take control of other things that are in uh, what in the cybersecurity business we would call a cyber kill chain or an attack chain. And what that refers to is there are certain things in your online life that depend on the trust of other things, right? So, so and when we think about chains of trust, uh, if, if your Gmail, for example, trusts your cellular provider and it trusts that your cell phone is in your hands, then that can become a weak link, right? Because if your cellular provider, if phone is not in your hands, then the person who does have it in their hands, in some cases, might be able to get into your Gmail or even worse, into your Chrome stored passwords. And that's an extremely common scenario for SIM swapping.
0: And is, is that where where when Chrome, when you put in a password, Chrome pops it up and says, do you want me to remember this password? Is that what you're talking about?
2: 100%. Okay. So the Chrome password manager is designed to be cloud-based. So if I have access to your master Google account, in most cases, and I would say, you know, the, the overwhelming majority of cases, I also will have access to your all the passwords you've ever told Chrome to store. Because it doesn't just store them locally, it stores them on Google's servers as well. So if you buy a brand new computer, the second you log into Chrome, if you have let it store your passwords, it's going to remember those as well. And that's usually a very, very convenient thing, <laughs> except when somebody else has access to those. So basically I should never do that, is what you're saying. Uh, no, you should not. We're going to talk a little bit about defense strategies and around risk mitigation. But yeah, you should not generally have your passwords stored in your browser uh, password manager, which are the ones that are built into the browser, uh, unless you are 100% confident that you can protect that link. Okay, so uh, it is extremely convenient, especially for Android users, to store their passwords there. But what most people will do is they will store their passwords there, but they don't properly protect their Google account itself. Mm. And when I say they don't properly protect, this is a very, very common scenario. common scenario is that by default, uh, someone's had a Gmail account since, say, 2016. By default, if they get locked, if they can't remember their password at all, they can restore or reset that password if they have the cellular phone that they registered with Google. So right. you can see the problem is, is if somebody SIM hijacks you, okay, uh, in a very common kill chain, what might happen is they call T-Mobile or even walk into a T-Mobile store, uh, g- are able to get a new SIM issued on a burner phone that they have from Walmart or whatever. Uh, and then they can go to a Chrome browser say, I forgot my password, Google sends them a reset code over SMS, which they now intercept, right? That reset code, it shows that you know they have possession of the phone, and then they can change that password for the master Google account. And when that happens, if you've stored your Coinbase and your all of your Binance and all of those passwords in there as well, they have instant access to all of those too. Mm. And it can even be made worse because most people are also storing their Banking, their traditional banking passwords, and guess what your bank does the first time it sees you log in from a new IP address? (laughs) Uh, It sends you an SMS code. (laughs) So if they've got that phone in their hand, yeah, they're going to get it. And so that's a very, very common scenario uh, for for, for that. And what it really has to do with is the fact that multi-factor authentication, which is the the service where you have a password plus you have to prove that you own something, you, you know something and you own something is a very common configuration for that, is very dependent on that SMS service. That, that short messaging service that the cellular companies provide is inherently insecure it, primarily because of social engineering attacks because it's so easy for an adversary to take over and port them, uh, basically take control of that account. Uh, that's not a necessarily as, as secure of a multi-factor authenticator as some of the other means that are out there. So what ultimately, so that happens. So the person is able to grab control of that. In addition, if they are a Gmail or a Yahoo or a Hotmail user, most people, not everybody, but most people have an absolute ton of information in their archives, right? Because we don't delete emails anymore. There's no reason to. Uh, And so they can go into your email and immediately search for words like Kraken or Coinbase and find, you know, your usernames and passwords in some cases, if you've even stored them there as well. Uh, But once they know which accounts to go to, they can go to Kraken, for example, and reset the password there because you have access to the Gmail. And that's really the, the keys to the kingdom, so to speak, for most people that really store everything around one single email box.
0: Okay, well, I, I get all that done, but I got confused on one part, the multi-factor authentication. That was supposed to be, I thought, like the primo deal. You well, know, sure. That if I had that, you know, even if they got all my information, they still wouldn't know the numbers you know, to put in.
2: Yeah, and that's actually kind of the irony of where we are now is because uh, companies are using multi-factor authentication, as a massive improvement in security posturing, except – the fact that the SMS part is the weak link because it's very easy to uh, convince somebody at most of the major carriers uh, to, to that you've lost your phone. So, for example, if you call in in a super duper panic and say, I, I've lost my phone, I can't, I need it. I mean, it's an emergency, et cetera. You're typically talking to a call center employee that may or may not have advanced cybersecurity training. And their job basically is to get you back up and running. So it's very easy for criminals to take advantage of that. And again, once they have that second factor, uh, in many cases they're able to reset the, the first factor, which is the password, right? So there's the, there's the inherent weakness, you know, kind yeah. of in that system. And when you talk about, uh, doing threat assessments, whenever you look at, uh, how do I protect myself and let's go back to the house analogy, analogy right? We know everyone is coming in from the electronic garage door or that's a very common way, right? But you can do things to prevent that, right? Certainly you can replace your garage door with a different type, (laughs) that's one type. Uh, We can also put deadbolts on the doors between the house and the garage. Uh, We can add additional alarms or better yet, best of all, we can get a dog, right? Because criminals don't typically like to break into houses where there's a dog barking. And I don't mean a a little baby dog, I mean like something that has a kind of a a scary sounding bark, right? Uh, And in this analogy, we can do the same things. So your job, if you want to protect your crypto assets, is not necessarily to make your cybersecurity posture like Fort Knox. Okay, what you ultimately want to do is make it so inconvenient, and so uh, risk. I mean, so ris- they go do someone else who's easier. That's a great. That's a, yeah. That's a great starting
0: point, right? For sure. So I'm going to stop you for a second, because, as I said. To you just a second ago about the multi factor authentication being the secure thing, something dawned on me that happened to me. You remember when I was switching my multi factor from Google to another company? Yeah, sure, to Audi, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, I was going on to sites and redoing it, you know, changing it and stuff. And one site I messed up on. And it was still on Google Authenticator, and I didn't pay attention, and I deleted Google. Oh, boy. So technically, I shouldn't be able to get into my site, right? Correct. Well, I just sent him an email and said, oh, what I did, and they turned off my multi-factor authentication so that I could get into my site and turn it back on with Authy. Yeah, so that's a... So that's something you didn't name as a problem with that is I just sent an email. I had my account number. I sent my email and I said, oh, man, they said, well, you didn't turn it off. And I said, oh, man, I deleted it. And they said, well, we'll turn it off for you so you can get back in.
2: Well, Gary, that's actually one of the best things that you can do uh, if you're very, very serious about cybersecurity, is you can test your own ability to social engineer yourself. Well, I did it. For example, in that case, you learned that that particular company will disable multi-factor with just an email request from your email box, which is trivial for a hacker to spoof, right? It's very easy for them to spoof your outgoing email.
0: And this was a big company that we all know. I just, I have no reason, I'm not like 60 minutes, I have no reason to... Throw them under the bus. Uh, if someone calls me, I'll tell them. But uh, yeah, that was a, it. Was a big company. was some off weird thing.
2: Yeah. So that's one of the things that I will actually do every year. So I have cellular phones from all the three major providers, and I will try to try to basically SIM hijack myself every year uh, in February of every year, and I've never ever not been able to do it. As a matter of fact, uh, on T-Mobile, I was actually able to do it with a with basically a copy of a of a water bill. It wasn't even my real water bill, right? Uh, in person, in a store, right? But it is shockingly easy, even if you take some of the uh, precautions that we're going to talk about towards the end of the show, it is actually very easy to do. And that's one of the reasons why, from a security posture standpoint, we're going to give you some advice on how to protect yourself from SIM hijacking, but we're going to go forward with the assumption that you cannot prevent it, period. It, It absolutely will happen. And you want to make sure that you know what will happen you know, when that occurs, because as of right now, I can't tell you with confidence that any of the cellular providers or Google for that matter, uh, are able to prevent this hundred percent, even if you're set up correctly. Now, th- I guess that would be a, a little bit of a teaser for some of the things that you can do. I mean, you can put a pin, a personal identifiable number, a personal identification number on your SIM ports. Okay. Uh, the problem with that is that is that thousands and thousands of employees at these cellular companies are authorized to override that because in many cases, people will forget their pen, right? It's a little bit more of a convoluted process, but that's certainly better than nothing. That's that's the lock on your garage door to your house, right? That's it, It's certainly better than right. nothing, and everyone should do that. You should call your cellular provider or go to their web page and apply an eight-digit or 10-digit pin, okay, not a four-digit one, because in theory that those would th- th- those are not nearly as secure, uh, put, a, put a longer pin on there, and then ultimately that will slow down an attacker. And just like the analogy about the dog, in many cases, they'll just move on to the next one, right, because they don't want to necessarily bother with trying to override the pin.
0: Right, right. So that just makes it a uh, – it's a first step, though. That's just a first
2: step. Yes. And so, but the real magic, the real important thing to do, the most important step, and most people will find this to be an incredible inconvenience to do, but you really need to divorce your online personas from your cellular phone numbers so that your cellular phone number is not used for recovery on any services, your Google, oh, any of them at all.
0: So I used Hush for my phone. That's the phone number I usually give out. But you're saying I should have that number connected to my crypto accounts?
2: Yes. So there are uh, several methodologies for doing that. You can use a service that will forward SMS messages. Uh, You can use something like Google Voice or uh, TextNow where and just use that number as a confidential just for recovery only. Right. Uh, Or you could take the methodology that you've taken, which is you don't ever give anyone your cell phone number out. Now, the problem with saying I'm going to I'm going to have my service with AT&T but I'm not ever going to give my number out to anyone so they wouldn't know how to reset my uh, SMS, you know, resets for Google or whatever. The problem with that is the carrier employees, which there are thousands and thousands of them, they still know that number as well. So it's a little bit better to divorce yourself from the cellular company completely and basically have Uh, one specific number that you only use for a recovery that nobody knows. Okay, In many cases, even you shouldn't necessarily know it. You shouldn't know it off the top of your head. You should have to be able to to log into Google Voice or whatever else that is. Okay, so with Hush, I can have two phone numbers if I want. I
0: should be making that second one, from what you're saying, the one that I would give like Kraken or Coinbase or whatever. No one else has it except for crypto people.
2: Sure, or, or better yet, at all. Like in many cases, I know that the uh, the the there's a recent article on Medium by Cyphertext where they actually talk about and my Crypto, by the way, that was the other co-author, where they actually talk about not having Google have a number for you at all, right? So so Google doesn't even need to know your phone number at all, uh, and give, give them That's other hard to ways. Do. to do. Google reach
0: you. keeps wanting that thing. I set up a Wait. new account with no phone number.
2: Yeah, and I'm not I'm not a hundred percent sure, certain that if you tell Google to forget your phone number, I'm not hundred percent sure if they ever really do forget, right? Yeah. <laughs> they might they might disable it in your profile. But I think once you give Google a piece of information, it's safe to assume that they probably retain that information. In yeah, the I would think they keep it forever. I don't and think certainly if you're an Android user, right? If you're an Android user for sure. So but that gets us to this next the next big point, which is ultimately all of this comes down to the fact that SMS, okay, is a bad Uh, incomplete uh, way to use multi-factor authentication. Now, it's better than nothing, right? So a lot of people will argue whether it's better to to not use it at all versus SMS. It's absolutely better than nothing. And usually when you're SIM hijacked, you will know, right? So your phone will stop working. Uh, You'll start to get password resets from companies like Apple and Google. And so you'll at least know and you can actually start responding to to that situation. Uh, But much better ways are out there for multi-factor authentication and and, and ultimately at the end of the day uh, that is the best solution for your crypto logins, your exchange logins. Now we all know that we shouldn't store significant assets on crypto exchanges, right? We we should keep those uh, in hardware wallets or paper wallets or, or other ways that we control the private keys. But let's just say for some reason you do need to store some Bitcoins on an exchange Uh, That exchange should be using uh, several layers of multi-factor authentication that do not involve SMS. Now, in some cases, you can set that up so that when you log in, you need a login, a password, a multi-factor token, which is typically uh, a a code that's generated on another device, right, Uh, or potentially a hardware key, and then, if you're transferring out, for example, you also need to click an email for verification. Now, if we've protected your email correctly, if we've if we've got that in a different silo, for example, than your main browser logins, uh, then that is extremely an effective way to prevent, you know, some theft or loss, right? Because even if that person was able to break several layers, they're still not going to be able to get that money out of that account, so to speak. And we have seen some incidences recently where the attacker wasn't able to withdraw off the exchange. And so what they ultimately did was they went to the traditional bank, like Bank of America, and tried to use those accounts to purchase crypto assets on a Russian exchange or something else out there. So that tells you that it does work, right? It does work when you have email verification. And a lot of times people that do crypto assets will say, oh, that seems like a pain. But it's a very, very important pain to undertake because if it's a pain for you, it's a triple pain for the attacker.
0: Right. How about, you know, this was something new I saw the other day that I wasn't familiar with. Email our um, wallet addresses, white labeling them.
2: Oh, I'm not familiar with this at all. No, I haven't seen this. What does what white
0: labeling mean? For instance, I saw it at Coinbase. You decide you want to use that service as an optional service. And if you do it, you have eight hours from the time you check, yes, I want to do it, to put in wallet addresses. Now, after your eight hours, if you or anyone comes to the site and says, hey, I want to put in an address to take this Bitcoin out of here, the address won't go into effect for 48 hours.
2: Ah, okay, great. So there's a delayed response.
0: Yeah. So if it's not your I mean, you can put in 100 addresses, you know, wallet addresses. But if you come in and try to put a new one in, Mm -hmm. it's going to be 48 hours before it's good. So you have 48 hours, I guess, to react before they can steal your Bitcoin, I guess, is the um, thought there.
2: Yeah, for sure. And any any mechanism like that or multi-sig or time delayed escrow any of those types of solutions if you're a nuisance to the attacker again the idea is is you're not an attractive target anymore right if, if, if they know it's going to take 48 hours for them to move anything at all then they'll just move on to the next person unless you're a, a particular uh, attractive target. Now, I will tell you this, by the way. Well, K, I wouldn't have
0: it, enough in my Coinbase for him to steal. I don't keep anything online. So. Okay, <laughs> but, well, yeah, we,
2: we, we do want to make sure we clarify that for the audience, especially the audience in Russia or in... Uh... <laughs>
0: I just thought it was interesting, and I said, you know, I might as well put the uh, address that I always always use with them, I might as well throw it in there. I mean, you know.
2: For sure. And it does sound like an interesting, it does sound like a very interesting approach to it. So, but that actually kind of leads into the next portion, which is why is this so happening so much? What, what, what causes all of this to become such a a pandemic, so to speak in the neighborhood. Right. And there's a few reasons for that. One of the reasons is, is because it is a relatively unsophisticated attack. So a 19 year old kid in Eastern Europe can go buy a $3 SIM and typically a a $5 burner phone, right? And if they know what they're doing and they're able to actually port that number, the attack almost costs nothing to do. It's almost basically free to do. And then the risk-reward ratio is such that—like, uh, for example, in the United States, you know Brian Krebs has written about this gang of, uh, of hackers that are between 19 and 23 years old, of which some of them were actually arrested. So that's how we know a little bit about their operation. But they were generating a million dollars a month, right? So doing a very unsophisticated attack, they're generating seven figures a month doing uh, basically what amounts to a few phone calls and a few kind of keystrokes. And that's a very interesting analogy because you couldn't, as a 19-year-old kid, you couldn't plan to rob banks for a million dollars a month, right? Without doing some serious planning and risking being shot and things like that. Uh, but in this case, it's actually an unsophisticated attack. And then the, attract, the target is so attractive because once somebody takes your crypto assets, they're basically gone, right? There's really no recovery path for if your Coinbase account is hacked and somebody steals all your Bitcoins, right? Uh, and that's a little bit unprecedented because if somebody were to do that on your Visa or your Mastercard or your American right. Express, you're not going to pay that, right? Typically, the the cardholder, yeah. the, the cardholder is is free from liability on that. But in this world, it's gone. It's 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 toast. And then also, law enforcement isn't that well equipped to deal with this. Now, there are some special task forces, especially in the FBI, that are dealing with this, but not compared to the volume of attacks. I mean, it's 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 overwhelmingly on the side of the adversaries, uh, that this is actually occurring. And, and we know for a fact it will continue because of that ratio of risk to reward. We, we know that it's only going to continue to get worse and worse. So the only real thing that we can do about it is reduce risk. Okay. Reduce the chances of us being a, a hit by it and then also make it so that we're not an attractive target at all as well. So there are steps you can do to prevent a catastrophic loss in the event that somebody does is able to penetrate all of your accounts, you know, then that's certainly where we talk about using non-browser based password managers. And when I say non-browser based, I mean companies like LastPass or OnePass that will actually act as a plug into the browser, but are not native to Firefox or Chrome or Safari or whatever that is, right?
0: You know, I'm going to interrupt you again because I'm I want to know why I there's a device I don't want to know why I don't see for crypto. When I go to my bank to log into my bank. I have a little fob in my hand, and I and all this is, is like a keychain. And I push a button on it, and a row of numbers come up, and then I add four numbers that I have memorized to the end of that. Sure. So even if someone could sync it to it, they still don't know the last four numbers. It's sure. not on my phone. It's not on my computer. It's not anywhere. It's just a little fob. How come no one's making this little? I mean, they make this device obviously already. They're doing it for banks. I've do, been doing it for my bank for four years. You know, to log into my bank account. How come no one's making a device like that for crypto?
2: Well, so they do, actually. That is a hardware token. It is a standalone device that actually is generating an OTP or a one-time password.
0: Right. It changes like every 30 seconds, just like multi-authentication.
2: Sure, and that's actually is available uh, via USB devices uh, called a YubiKey, for example, and that is a little USB, looks like a thumb drive, right?
0: Yeah, but how come there's not one that I just do like I do that one? That's not connected. I don't hook it up to the phone. I don't do hook it up to a thumb drive. I don't hook it up to a USB.
2: Well, and actually, we can build you one of those. The way that we actually build you one of those is to set up OTPs on an offline air-gapped device. So in the case of in the example of
0: which is what I guess I have an offline air-gapped
2: device. Correct. That's a, that's a device that can generate those OTPs uh, usually via Authy, uh, potentially via Google Authenticator that you do not put on the internet. That is not on the Wi-Fi, it's not plugged into your computer and it's not on there's no there's no SIM in it, right? You can take the SIM out, right? Uh, which is very much a a a p- potential security a protection mechanism, because what that means is, is that you have a device uh, running those codes that cannot be necessarily hacked, right? Because it's, because it's not connected to anything else. It's out there. Uh, you could use that as your sole off uh, the generator device uh, in most cases for convenience purposes people will have an offline air-gapped device doing that and then they'll also use their phone as well because or their, their laptop computer or both the only thing to remember about that Gary is if you're gonna go that that way which I very much recommend people look at doing make sure that once you enable multi-device on those two devices and once you test that those tokens are working on the websites that you're using them on you then want to disable uh, additional device additions so that if somebody were to if somebody were able to get into your authy they couldn't add another device to get those codes right now so far we have not seen people doing widespread attacks to take over google authenticator or oops. Authy accounts. Oops. Uh, oops. <laughs> I even checked my phone. <laughs> but there was a really high profile attack in California about three months ago. And the guy worked in crypto. And they actually did get into his Authy account. He had a very easy password on his Authy account. And it was designed so that anybody could log into a new machine and just add it on there. Uh, as well. And and in that case, they actually had his Authy codes generated for every crypto exchange he was on, and they were able to clean him out. So if you do go the route of using Authy, you want to make sure that you take steps to protect that as well. Because just like with the kill chain around Gmail, the softest point in your trust chain uh, is always the point of attack, right? That's the that's right. the one that you're the most concerned with. So if you have a properly configured uh, setup for OTP generation and you have an air gapped offline device, the really nice thing about that, Gary, is if your phone were to go into the toilet, okay, you wouldn't even have to debate whether to get it out of the toilet or not because <laughs> you know you have a backup device. Well, seeing
0: that's what I've done, I took my old phone and that's all that's on it is my backup Authy. For sure. And then I just set it with my, uh, well, somewhere separate from my wallet. It's like in three places hidden. You got to like really know the maze of my house. (laughs) To find all my stuff.
2: Why don't you just tell us exactly where all the things are hidden in your house? Well, they're uh, in my house. I will let
0: people know that. They're in my house. So if you break into my house and can find three, I have a pretty good system. I would like to share my system with you someday. Uh, okay. Just the, not the whole system, but part of it, because it is so ingenious okay. that everybody should do this. But uh, yeah, go go back. Oh, hey, I'm going to take a break here. I'm going to take a break here for a second because we've been just going on, and I want to make sure everybody knows about BitBlock Boom. If you're a regular listener to this show, I know you know about BitBlock Boom, or if you follow me at all, because that's all I talk about. I was just telling Ray my whole life has been BitBlock Boom for the last few months. But that's a conference that I'm hosting in Dallas, Texas. Ray's going to be there. He was there last year, and when I say it's, it's a Bitcoin conference, and when I say Bitcoin conference, it is, because that's what we talk about Bitcoin, not altcoins, not Ethereum. We talk about Bitcoin. It's just Bitcoin. But the second Bitcoin conference in Dallas is coming August the 17th and 18th, and then there's stuff going on the 15th and 16th, too. So go to bitblockboom.com and look at the schedule and see what's going on. We're getting pretty close to being sold out. It is a limited uh, amount of people that can attend. Use the code uh, COUSINS and you'll receive 30% off the price of your tickets. So go to uh, Bitblock Boom today. Ray, you're leading a panel?
2: Correct, absolutely.
0: With, uh, we got a, on your panel, a crypto guy, a neutral Bitcoin maximalist kind of crypto guy, and then a Bitcoin maximalist. That's your panel.
2: And we're gonna be talking about alts versus, uh, <laughs> versus BTC, and hopefully it will, the alts will have picked up quite a bit by then, because that's, that's about five weeks away.
0: You know what um, Tone Vases panel is? No, tell me. It's why all alts are shit coins and will die. Oh, <laughs> and then and then deans is uh, the government destroyed your money, <laughs> and now they're destroying your food.
1: <laughs> wow. So
0: so it sounds kind of radical there, but anyway, check it out.
2: Okay, so yeah, we're good. let's let's get back to talking about uh, personal protection around cyber assets. You know that you, when you were talking about Bitblock Boom, that actually reminded me that one thing a lot of cousins may not be aware of is that when you give people your public Bitcoin wallet address, for example, uh, or certainly when you put it on Twitter or say it out loud publicly, uh, it is easy for an attacker to ascertain what the assets in that wallet are, right? They can see histories and, 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 ingress and egress from that particular address. And so that's one of the reasons why it's relatively important to, uh, even though they're called public keys, you still should treat those, uh, with the same discretion as you would your bank account number, right? So you wouldn't just randomly put, here's my bank account number, uh, in a Craigslist ad, for example. Right. Uh, and you really should treat your public keys the same way because, uh, adversaries can do things like dusting attacks or they can do chain analysis to try to figure out who you're connected to uh, in the hopes that eventually they can either find out who you're doing business with uh, by a, from a personal standpoint uh, or just kind of whether and how many assets you hold, right? And that particular portion uh, is called operational security or OPSEC, uh, which is that you want to be kind of paranoid, Gary. You you want to treat that information Uh, As if it was only attackers that you were talking to, because especially on social media, uh, that, that it absolutely is. I know I've joined some of the crypto organizations. Uh, on Facebook, that I think I joined yours as well as a couple other masterminds there, and I'm constantly getting social engineering attacks where people are sending private messages saying, "Hey, can you invest in this?" or "Hey, I've got this gambling site and blah 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 blah." And those are all scams, right? They're 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 all designed to basically get to drain you of your wallet or your Are you
0: kidding me? <laughs> I thought I was like gonna win a lot of money.
2: No, you're, you're not going to win a lot of money. Oh, and, uh, you're joking
0: me, right? Because I've really been really working those real hard. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and I will tell you, there is a, a type of attack where uh, the attacker is solely looking to try to identify people that are gullible, <laughs> right? So by identifying yourself as someone who's gullible on this podcast, you might be, make, you might be drawing a bigger target on your own back. So, well, I was really counting and, on those winnings. I mean, uh, to, to make
0: sure everything went OK for me in my retirement. <laughs>
2: And again, you know, that is yet another reason why, you know, when we talk about uh, our identities, our our kind of our our online personas, so to speak, uh, you want to make sure that you're protecting yourself and your personal information, because if an attacker thinks that you are an extremely attractive target, for example, if you were to say on this podcast, you know, I've got 110 Bitcoin sitting on Coinbase.
0: Well, I can tell people right now, I don't have 110 Bitcoin. And if I did, they wouldn't be... (laughs) <laughs> so let's make that official.
2: That's good. But for example, if you were to make those kind of statements, which people do all the time, right? On Twitter, you'll see people posting screenshots of their block folio. Oh, yeah. I see that a lot. Yeah,
0: I see that a lot.
2: And all that is doing is drawing in as if you were put it pouring blood in the water around a bunch of sharks. Because those attacks are very, can be very targeted attacks, right? If I'm a hacker and I know for a fact that there's somebody that has hundred bitcoins, uh, I'm going to work at least a hundred times harder <laughs> on that person uh, than I would for somebody that I thought, you know, the chances were that maybe they had one, right? At the right. most, right? So it really is about reducing the attractiveness of being becoming a target, right? As well as also just being very careful about the kind of information you divulge. Now,
0: Well, someone like Tim Draper, I mean, who it's public knowledge has 100,000 Bitcoin or something. He must be getting targeted
2: all the time. And I'm not going to discuss his personal security.
0: No, no, I don't. I don't know what his security is. I'm just saying someone (laughs) of that caliber that you know has a lot of Bitcoin.
2: Yeah. You know, just
0: generically a person, you know, that's out there in the public. I've got a ton of Bitcoin. They're really getting hammered.
2: For sure. And they wouldn't necessarily tell the world if they had been breached either. Like if you're Craig Wright, for example, you know for a fact he's – He's under constant assault, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah he's not going to advertise right. that. Oh, I got stolen because if he did, then there would be even more sharks at the in the water, right, so to speak. Oh
0: yeah, saying, oh, it is possible to get money from this cat. This cat. You know,
2: it is interesting because I will tell you, and I'm not going to name names here, but I will tell you some of the largest luminaries in all of Bitcoin, like the really, really, really big megastars, people we haven't even mentioned yet. I have talked to some of them before about security, and most of them don't use cell phones at all. At all, like not even a tiny bit. So um, I could think of one particular individual who's written a few books and he only uses the iPod Touch Plus a Wi-Fi hotspot, so you can't SIM hijack him if you wanted to, right? <laughs> like, there's just no way to do it at all. Uh, and and you know, you might think, well, I wonder if that paranoia is that paranoia too much? Well, last year they, there were a lot of people that were sending bitcoins, you know, to this pers- the, the, uh, this person. So yeah, it certainly is. You know, well established that you know those types of security mechanisms are there. I will also tell you, uh, I haven't mentioned this yet. But uh, last month, an article came out where Google said, we don't think this attack is very serious because it's only a few uh, very high profile individuals. And we have a program okay, for politicians and journalists uh, that is a very, very specific program that uses hardware keys and it's much, much harder to get into your Gmail. OK, now the problem with that Google stance is what they were ultimately saying was that SMS two-factor or multi-factor is better than none at all, which they're right about. But they're wrong about how many people are high profile. I would say anyone who's involved in cryptocurrency trading, anyone who's on Telegram talking about it, anybody who's on Facebook, anybody who's downloading a lot of podcasts, Those are attractive targets that are out there. But the good news is, is that both Google and AT&T and T-Mobile and Sprint have this kind of path for what they call high-risk individuals. And you need to make sure you identify yourself to your providers as a high-risk individual for no other reason than the fact that you are involved in cryptocurrency.
0: So that's just a take. And you need to call up the security of your phone provider and make sure they know.
2: 100%. And certainly apply that PIN and if they will let you if you if they will let you tell them i don't ever want to let my SIM be ported without showing my passport or without showing a physical id in a store now again that, that, well we know
0: from previous episodes that really doesn't isn't 100% foolproof
2: Correct. In many, many cases, the, uh, the way that people are getting around that rule is they basically convince one employee at a, at a store to call another store and say, we've already seen photo ID, which is a really easy way to kind of override that. But again, it's better than nothing. You certainly right. want to put those notes on your account. The real answer is to harden and protect your email, which is kind of the weakest link, so to speak, uh, across all that, and then remove the SMS on the cellular side completely. So, um what are carriers doing about this? Yes, yeah, so uh, the carriers are saying they're doing all kinds of stuff that they put into place uh, programs and investigations and frequently asked questions. In my opinion, they're not doing nearly enough, okay? because this is affecting, you know, one tenth of one percent of their customers, or maybe even one hundredth of one percent of their customers, uh, it, it, they're not taking it nearly seriously enough, and and it and it will continue to become a problem because of that fact, right? This is just like if you went to the doctor and he never washed his hands, he might say, "Well, we only had three infections last month," but you know, it's just a matter of time until <laughs> everybody starts to get kind of sick, right? right. Uh, so uh, there is some discussion in Congress uh, and among the FCC about really regulating some of these these services um, because it's becoming so widespread. But ultimately, the carriers are, are ill-equipped to deal with this. They, they never intended to be the linchpin for all cybersecurity. Uh, the SMS protocol itself was never intended that way. We haven't really talked about how to spoof SMS messages yet. We haven't really talked about uh, some of the IMSI hijacking things that you can do with a with a software-defined radio and a Raspberry Pi. But ultimately, SMS itself is not an end-to-end encrypted service with message delivery authentication. So the entire protocol for SMS itself is not secure. Right. And that includes, you know, on LTE, 3G, even 5G, that SMS itself is inherently insecure. So the carriers will say we were never intended to be we were never built to be, you know, kind of the linchpin for all of banking and all of all of crypto asset trading and all of email trading. Right. uh, That's out there. Uh, The real answer is ultimately to go to better systems like hardware tokens or Authy or Google Authenticator and and use those correctly uh, and basically dodge the entire uh, weakness of SMS Um, of course you know you still want to hold your carrier as accountable as you can uh, and it is important to you know read things like how what to do when this actually occurs you know to understand that piece the first thing you do the very very first thing you do if this occurs to you is contact your carrier and tell them to turn you off completely don't tell them to switch me back to my old phone because they won't do that always tell them disable me completely I'll physically go to the store tomorrow morning because. What you're hoping to do is to get the attacker so that you can now recover and get back into those services. But as long as he has your phone number on his SMS device, that's going to be very, very difficult to do. Okay. Um, I know that there was another example recently where the the person under attack changed their password to an older password. Uh, That is something that you definitely don't want to do because um, you have to assume that the attacker has all old passwords, both the ones that have been breached mm. and the ones that were used in your password manager, right? right. If you were if you were using Chrome, uh, for that standpoint. So the very very first thing you want to do is call your carrier, which you can typically do by dialing six one one from another phone on that carrier's services, and say turn me off, stop everything, turn me off, uh, and then try to take try to assess and what you know to say say I'll physically go in the store. Or I'll talk to a level two support person, uh, you know, or whatever those things are. But again, prevention is way more valuable than mitigation or incident response. If we can prevent it completely, that's even better. Now, well, that's really a pretty good um,
0: what we need to have done. We just need to get this killed. You know, when more people are using this, when more people are on Bitcoin, have Bitcoin, so that's when they'll take it more as more of a threat.
2: Uh, certainly, I mean, I think when it starts to make the news a lot more, right? I mean, we we had Justin Bieber get hit by one of these attacks a couple of years ago. That was pretty high profile, right? But but that was, uh, uh, you know, that was about hijacking Twitter accounts and things like that. Uh, when I think when w- the more the media attention happens around this, I think we'll start to see a little bit more proactive steps. But the biggest takeaway for the cousins, the listeners out there is that you need to be responsible for protecting your own garage and your own house, right? Right. And so that means patching regularly. That means running antivirus. That means never reusing the same password or better yet, even just using a password manager that's not... Uh, Browser based, but is actually a plug in for your mobile devices. Uh, It means being careful about uh, protecting yourself on Wi Fi. It means making sure that your children are actually engaging in safe cyber computing as well, because again, the weakest link in the house is typically the weakest link to get into the house, right? So all of those things that we kind of referred to in the past as cyber hygiene, they're all extremely important and they're becoming more important because these attacks are so prevalent and will continue to be. Wow. Good information there, Ray Redacted. (laughs) Basically,
0: it's just what you said, just making it harder so they go down the street. Correct. That's That's the whole deal, right? Just making it harder. If you're going to go down the street and you hear a dog and you see burglar barms and it's protected by ADT, and then you look next door and the front door is open, who are you going to rob?
2: Sure. <laughs> Espe- well, especially if you see an NRA sticker in yeah, <laughs> the yeah. window, right? Yeah. <laughs> At least in Texas, people don't typically break into those out. House- well, they might because they want the gun, but typically that means that the owners are probably armed, so.
0: Yeah, yeah, they're taking their chances.
2: Well, Ray, anything else you want
0: about security before we wrap this up Do you want to make sure people know?
2: Yeah, so I mentioned this earlier. The folks at MyCrypto, that's Taylor Monahan and her crew, uh, as well as CypherText, wrote a really, really good article on Medium about what to do if you're attacked. And it also has some prevention and mitigation response there, too. I think we could put that in the speaker notes, can't we, Gary? Can we Can we yeah. put a link to that in your yeah, notes? Yeah, sure, sure. Uh, I would highly encourage people to check that out. It is very long. I think it's uh, – I think it's like a 30-minute read, which is means that you probably want to read it before you actually get attacked <laughs> because that that's the time of panic, et cetera. Um, and then the other thing I really want to leave everyone with is uh, I would highly encourage you to, at least once a year, uh, go to all your major accounts and pretend like you lost your password. Just pretend like it and see what the steps are in order for you to take over or hijack your own accounts. And then make sure those are secure. Yeah, it may be very eye-opening. In your case of the multi-factor that you lost, uh, you were very surprised to learn that it takes a simple email request for them to override their own internal multi-factor. I actually thought <laughs>
0: I'd lost that crypto that was on that, <laughs> that one. Oh, so you
2: were relieved,
0: right? Yeah, I was. I said, like, oh, good, because it, it wasn't a ton, but it was some there. I mean, you know. Well, we're not going
2: to talk about specific amounts, right? That's bad off-sack. <laughs> yeah, you know, it,
0: was it wasn't much. I mean, you know, I don't keep much online. I mean, you know, some I, I forgot even was there. Yeah, sure. I said, oh, "Oh, where's that? Where's that at?" And I said, "Oh, I bet that's on so and so." So yeah, so that's uh, I'll, we'll put that in the show notes for sure.
2: And you. then my final piece of advice is, is come to Bitblock Boom because we're going to be talking about all kinds of good stuff uh, along these lines, as well as having some. It sounds like some pretty passionate uh, panels, good old arguments on stage.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think we are. Hey, one more question before we get out of here. How often is it that someone like decides to get into something whether it's crypto or whatever or what are the odds are i guess i guess you wouldn't know how often that they decide to get into crypto something and they download their stuff and their computer's already all infected yeah so as they're setting it up they're basically just handing over the keys to the you know to the criminals
2: yeah, so I mean, there are shocking statistics about how many Windows devices are infected with spyware or with keyloggers. Uh, up to now, there hasn't been a widespread keylogger attack to try to capture credentials to cryptocurrency stuff. We have seen banking Trojans, though. We have seen. Uh, pretty widespread spread worms and trojans that are designed to fool you into typing your banking login and password especially uh, in Asia and in Eastern Europe although there are several of those instances in North America but I can tell you with 100% certainty it's only a matter of time until that becomes a threat vector as well so you need to make 100% sure that if you are running any virus that you're keeping it up to date okay that's just basic hygiene and that you're patching yourself against things like uh, the latest Windows exploits and, and zero-day attacks and things like that that is are that out that more there, concerning so. on a PC versus an, a Mac? Uh, you know, I don't necessarily want to make that blanket statement because we have seen some pretty sophisticated Mac malware recently. Uh, but it seems like from a risk-reward uh, standpoint, there is a lot bit more, there's a lot more money to get in the Windows world, right? So it's attracting a lot more attention.
0: I was visiting with a friend last night, and he's telling me, you know, well, when Bitcoin was... 3,200. We ate dinner. He said, Tell me when I should buy. And I said, You probably should buy. And then he called me at 5,000 and said, Gary, how much is Bitcoin? I said, 5,000. He said, I thought you were going to tell me when to buy. I said, I did when we had dinner. (laughs) And then last night I saw him. He goes, How much is Bitcoin? I said, 1,100. He said, I thought you were going to tell me when to buy. I said, I did when we ate dinner and when you called me and it was 5,000. So now he's ready to buy. Long story to get there. But that was just (laughs) funny how every time I see him, he goes, I thought you were going to tell me. So anyway, he's ready to buy. And he's got this Mac. And he, I said, what do you do on your Mac? Because goes, well, I play video games all day on here. And I send emails. That's all I do. And so I'm going, you're probably not, I know you're not very computer savvy. You're probably clicking on stuff because it says to. So I said, before you do anything, I'm mean, want I to know if I'm right here, Ray. I said, before you do anything, we're going to have to download a virus uh, sure. thing and see what in the hell's on your damn computer before we go open up any accounts or do any transfers or any wallets. Is that the first step?
2: Yeah, and just to clarify, you didn't say to download a virus. You were saying to download antivirus software, right? Right, right. right. <laughs> to, make sure,
0: to make sure you haven't
2: downloaded a virus. I, I just didn't know what kind of friend you were if you were the kind of friend that would say, <laughs> no, I've written that was my cute. own
0: virus. So like, <laughs>
2: <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> I, so, I help
0: my friends out by installing it on their computer.
2: Yeah, so I mean, ultimately, at the end of the day, if you think that that person might have malware or, or advertising wear. Well,
0: I think the odds are pretty good with him. He sits here and plays video games all day on his computer and. Open
2: well, the best thing of all would be to start with a new one, right? Like to start with a Chromebook or something that had never been on the internet before and get it patched up, right? Uh, because even antivirus uh, software is never hundred percent infallible, as we can see right now, because there's like a lot of viruses that wouldn't even be detected, et cetera, that are out there. But yes, you certainly do want, even if you're a Mac user you do want to make sure that you're you're using and keeping up to date um, anti-mac malware so- software as well. But in a perfect world, what you would have probably done for that friend is to convince him to buy like a really cheap Chromebook or even a cheap Windows laptop and just use that for crypto and nothing else, especially if he's buying more than a couple bitcoins, right? Because it totally justifies, you know, spending a few hundred bucks. To keep it yeah. as secure as possible, especially just getting a Chromebook. Just say, and I know that's what you do, right? You have a, yeah. a dedicated laptop that's specifically for crypto, and you don't you don't necessarily intertwine it with all of these other services. No, it doesn't right? do anything.
0: It's like my backup phone. It doesn't do anything, but it's one task.
2: For you sure,
0: know? it's a, a one task uh, laptop. It's never really done anything. I bought it and specifically for my wallet, and, and that's all it ever does.
2: You should also mention that it's protected inside of three hardened safes and five dogs and lots of lasers and guns pointing at it too, right? Yeah, well, we live in
0: Texas, Ray, of course.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I just want to make sure you don't tell everybody there's a laptop that has all your crypto on it. No, no,
0: no, it's got Gatling guns on it. I'm telling you, I got a pretty safe thing in the house here. You're going to really have to, like, you're going to have to be in my house for days to find all three needed items, you know, to do any harm to me. I mean... I guess they could come in tomorrow, and get it, but they still aren't going to be billionaires. They're better targets. Ray, thanks for coming on. I really do appreciate it.
2: Gary, as always, it was my pleasure, and uh, everyone out there, try to be safe.
0: Yeah, that's a good idea. Thanks, everyone, for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's show. A big thank you to all the cousins out there that are showing their support by donating, subscribing, and leaving great reviews on iTunes. All of those things help more than you realize. Now, you can subscribe almost anywhere podcasts are available by going to CryptoCousins.com slash subscribe. Call me with your comments or questions at 747-777-9471, or you can email me at the CryptoCousins at gmail.com, and I'll try to use these on future episodes. Please take a peek at the 4-Minute Crypto Show, which is produced every weekday and located at 4minutecrypto.com. It's the place to get your daily dose of crypto news and is always, four minutes or less. And one last thing. Please take a look at my new website, Crypto Crybaby. This website is for the true crypto fan and sells Bitcoin and crypto gear like t-shirts, caps, and so much more. Take a look at CryptoCrybaby.com today. Thanks again for listening. Love you guys.
1: Thanks for listening to the Crypto Cousins podcast. Please share the show with your friends. They can subscribe by going to CryptoCousins.com slash subscribe. And if you want to know more about Gary, just go to GaryLeland.com. Make sure and join Gary and all the Crypto Cousins every week for a new episode of the Crypto Cousins podcast. The Crypto Cousins podcast and the information included in the podcast are not intended as investment advice. Investing in any cryptocurrency is risky, and you should never invest more than you can afford to lose. Always seek professional advice before investing in any cryptocurrency. Please understand, you are using any and all information from the Crypto Cousins at your own risk.